Hello, welcome back to the podcast. I hope this finds you well. And in this podcast, I'm going to be talking with Thomas Hubel about healing collective trauma. Uh, he's got a new book out, which I haven't read yet, but I do. Um, I'm, I'm boldly, I'm going to recommend that you read that, but I can't wait to read it. And I think one of the things we really care about at Coaches Rising is pointing to what are the like the leading edges of work. And I think Thomas is definitely one of those people. And particularly myself, my personal journey is around how can I broaden the sphere in which I work with my one-on-one clients that I'm not just working with their individual conditioning and history and relationship to their leadership and manifestation of the life they want but how do I include the system they're involved within in a way that empowers that process their journey they're on and so that's what we're going to talk about today we're going to talk about collective trauma what is it how does it show up in the world and how can we begin to work with it how does Thomas work with it in the groups that he's facilitated over the years and years now Uh, What happens in those groups? What are the consequences of integrating collective trauma? All right, then, that all being said, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Thomas Hubel. All right, Thomas, uh, here we are. I'm super excited for our conversation today. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Joel. I'm happy to be here again with you. I feel a lot of uh, synergy um, Mm. with our work, so I'm happy to have this conversation. Nice. Well, yeah, I I, I was just saying in our little check-in that um, for me, this is a really important conversation I'd like to have with you today because of the, um, the ways that I feel we're being invited to become aware of, um, well, not only how transformation itself wants to transform you know like what's the work we do as coaching as coaches and consultants and how um, we're being invited to evolve that Uh, but also how we can um, at the same time as a species begin to surface some of these hidden dynamics that are at play that are determining the course of um, how we respond to these big challenges we face, you know, these crises we face on a, on a global level. So uh, this, this conversation we have today about healing collective trauma, I think is going to point to a very, very important part of all of that. If that all makes sense, what I just said. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think uh, yeah. collective trauma is at the root of so many developmental questions nowadays, definitely. Yeah. So let's let's just begin by defining what that is and then move into how we can work with it and particularly how coaches and consultants might encounter it in organizations, for example, too. But so let's uh, begin by just naming what you could say, like what is collective trauma and how it's impacting us? Yeah. And maybe let's look at uh, the two elements. One is trauma and one is collective trauma. I mean, they are, they are one uh, obviously, but, when we look at trauma, many people think of trauma as terrible events that happen to us. But in fact, what we call trauma is actually the trauma response that happens within our bodies, nervous systems, emotional systems, relational capacities. So 
that a person goes through an overwhelming experience that the person cannot compute. And that's why, and, or process, and that's why we have two things. We have a high overload of stress, and then we, the nervous system can split off a part and numb it. So the, it's like a TV that has a crazy scene and a loud noise, and then you mute the noise, and then you take the TV off the wall and you throw it into the ocean. And it slowly disappears with the movie still going on in the dark water, mm. the unconscious. And that's very important because many of us in our earlier development went through such um, overwhelming experience because we always need to know for, for if a one-year-old child, as you know, as a father, it, children are so sensitive and so open. And if somebody is not aware of that or there are more aggressive behaviors or neglect, it's super stressful for a child. So trauma cannot be judged only by my grown-up perspective. I need to always ask the other person. And, um, and so that's one thing. And then when, when we say there is the trauma response that has two symptoms or three symptoms that come with it. One, I get very stressed at times. I get over overreactive and I get triggered, which means I touch the stress that I experience in the traumatizing moment. And ever since it's living in my nervous system. So if a person meets me at that spot, I feel like I overreact. And then we say, oh, I don't know why I was so charged. And the other part is that we become indifferent and numb, which means I cannot tell you what I feel. I sometimes don't feel my body. I'm absent in my body. I feel just muscle tensions or tensions in myself, but I can't feel what's actually the deeper reason for it. So hyperactivation, numbness. Numbness leads to indifference. And the fragmentation leads to the, like a duality in life, a fragmentation in life, a bit of black or white. And we lose the capacity to be modulated. So we are very stressed where we don't feel. And that's important because at the basis of trauma symptoms is always a sense of separation and isolation. I feel separate in myself towards the world and I feel isolated and I feel withdrawn. I feel very shaky. And when we take this now to the bigger systemic dimension, because, you know, an effect like the Second World War in Europe, the Holocaust, genocides, dictatorships, like slavery, racism, a Native American genocide, there's so many large-scale wounds and also nature, natural disasters. They, they leave many people at the same time traumatized. And that's different. So... My work, I discovered the whole understanding of collective trauma actually through my groups and through the kind of eruptions of collective trauma material in my groups. And then I studied that deeper and then I learned, every group I learned more. I've been with it is now for 18 years, so it's a, it's a strong, there's a, like a strong history to this work. And um, so massive impacts of historic trauma leave many generations dealing with trauma symptoms, and we call it individual issues, 
developmental issues, attachment trauma, personal issues, but actually they are just a reverberation of much, a much larger trauma net. So trauma has been going on for thousands of years. We are not the first one being traumatized and we have been born into a world that was already traumatized. And that's why I wrote also the book, Healing Collective Trauma, because the, the, I came to understand, wait a minute, we are living in a, a, a large network of trauma. I was born into post-World War Austria, and, and nobody told me as a child that what I see in my grandparents, what I see in my parents, what I see in my teachers, the, the numbness and the heaviness that I felt, that these are trauma symptoms. So I grew up and called and said, okay, that's how the world is, like many of us. The, so trauma is the water, partly the water we are swimming in, and that's why it conditioned our nervous systems and it's hard to see. And uh, so that's why I think a new collective systemic dimension is coming up that adds to our individual understanding of trauma of, of individuals. And I think that's an important uh, link. Yeah, I think for that reason, that's why I'm so uh, passionate about the coaching community, having an understanding about this, because we tend to, you know, and I have uh, focus on the individual, you know, and uh, the individual uh, conditioning or, or trauma that might be impacting someone's leadership or how they manifest their vision in the world. And, and so to put, to put it in this greater context, I think is very important and empowering. And I, I just, it left me with a question, what you said of like, is it, do you think it's necessary to distinguish between individual trauma and this collective trauma, like in order to do this work, like, and how, how, how might we do that? Like, how do they show up differently? I think you said they, they're different. Mm -hmm. How might they might show up differently? Yeah. Yeah. We can see these like Russian puppets, you know, the Russian dolls that are yeah. stacked to each other. There's a small one, a bigger, bigger, bigger. So my individual trauma, let's say my parents either abused me or neglected me. It's just an example. And, and then I walk through my life with the trauma symptoms of that kind of parenting. But my parents did that, not necessarily because they were vicious, but because they didn't feel certain things, so they were overreactive and they became aggressive. And so the shock that I took away from that stayed in my system. So that imprinted me, let's say. So if a person is has been imprinted by a certain um, amount of attachment or like parenting trauma, let's call it, then the parents did that because they were traumatized themselves. And then when we go back in the ancestral line, usually we see repetitive patterns that, that have been passed on through the ancestral line. And we know from science and epigenetics more and more that there is a transmission of the trauma information through our epigenetic environment to the next generation. And then, when, and then I've learned that, that when I worked with, with people on their trauma, especially also the war trauma in, in, in Europe, so then I saw, wow, the trauma healing happens to a certain place, and then it got stagnant, and then I saw, ah, oh, wow, now there's an entanglement between 
the child that was in a in a basement when cities were bombed in Germany, and many people around were shocked, traumatized, numb, destabilized. So there is a destabilized system. It's different, and a society is pretty much quiet, and one person gets traumatized. So the the individual always is entangled with the collective. There is no separate individual. The individual is an expression of the collective. That's why there's always interdependence. And so in the trauma healing, I saw, wow, we need to include that atmosphere that is now stored in the nervous system and the traumatization of my client in order to continue the healing. And then, and then I saw, wow, actually, when we work with larger groups, and we did that up to groups with 1,000 people or over 1,000 people, that we saw collective presencing that many people create a safe and deeply relational environment. When people share in the group about their own history or trauma story, it's not about the story, it's about the content that comes with the story. Then everybody becomes a sounding board and in a high level of group presence, we, we create the healing environment for the person and the person brings a healing impulse into the collective. So that's a very powerful tool. But you are right, as, as therapists or as consultants or as coaches, when we meet uh, our clients and we see the dysregulated symptoms or trauma symptoms, we first need to work on the more individual stuff because that's closer to me. But then usually we see that that's a result of a much larger chain of events and they are not just gone because they're history, because integrated history is presence. But unintegrated history, let's say my grandparents got traumatized in the war, that just doesn't disappear that needs to be integrated. And if not in that generation, then in the generations to come. So they are all interrelated as a system. Yeah. I just, I just think about my grandfather who was stranded on the beaches at Dunkirk, you know, and, and shelled for, for like two days, not knowing whether he would get off, you know, and, um, and that was also involved in the landings, you know, um, and, and um, the, you know, I have to feel the sadness of like how there was just not an understanding when he came back into society. And, uh, you know, the only way he could to, to cope was to, to drink, you know, which I think was very common in those times. And I, I'm, I'm struck by what you share about how, yeah, you said like in society, it's like if one person was traumatized and everyone else wasn't, then it would be very different than, than if there is this collective trauma. And I get a sense of how everybody's kind of like resonating with each other and that the, there's a kind of dysregulation that kind of pass keeps passing through. And, you know, if I look at the world right now, that seems to fit, you know, it seems to be like there's a lot of that taking place. And thinking about that, of how like, wow, than what you describe of like, wow, but then actually in these groups, we can use that very same mechanism to create a kind of coherence, you know, and, and a, an integration and a healing that the group actually is part amplifies or um, intensifies 
that integration process. I think that's yes, what absolutely right. Absolutely right. Amazing. Well said. Amazing. And and because the basic underlying principle is I feel you and I feel you how you feel me. That's the basic underlying attachment uh, quality. That's resonance. My nervous system feels your nervous system. My nervous system, or like you as a father, when you tune in with your child, you modulate your nervous system to meet your child's age. That's good parenting. You stay, but you're not becoming a, child, a baby yourself or a young child. You, you stay in your grown-up perspective, but you can modulate your nervous system's attention to the age of your child. So you know how to speak to the child. You know how to feel it. You know the rhythm of the child. You know, you know what the child can understand and what not. All of these are regular, healthy parental functions. And... Still, you are grown up, so you give your child orientation. Yeah. And that works because you feel your child, but your child is highly aware how you feel it, even if it doesn't say it. But as children, we totally feel if we are in the presence of our parents or if in the absence of our parents. If you're in the presence of our parents, we feel safe. In the absence of our parents, we don't feel safe. If we feel that our parents don't feel us, our nervous system is already going into heightened stress levels. Yeah. And so many grown-ups today walk around with that insecurity. And then we say insecure achiever is kind of in the in some of the assessment models. Yeah, but where does that insecurity come from? And that insecurity is often like kind of a tale of our of our attachment story. And so, as you said, we can use I feel you feeling me, same as it's getting hurt through inappropriate relation. We can train it in groups together, do integration work together to up-level I feel you feeling me. I feel the group and how the group is aware of me. And that function becomes group presence and coherent. And the ultimate and that's, I think, also for every facilitator or coach, the ultimate capacity to create a safe environment for our clients, which means that we feel safe inside and that we can feel our client is like half the way of our success. Yeah. If I cannot, if the, the person that I'm working with is not, doesn't feel that I'm feeling him or her, there's much less trust and much more inner stress and activation than when the person feels felt and seen. There's something that is called neuroception that our nervous system immediately picks up on, on that kind of direct connection from body to body. So for a consultant, it means if I feel safe in myself, if I can offer continuity of relation, and if I can feel my clients, then that already creates a much deeper level of trust so that the client is also much more able to receive my competence in whatever organizational skills I'm offering. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully spoken. I mean, I, I, I just want to emphasize that on a one-to-one -one level too, that that I think is also one of the leading edges now of that. Can we, can we attune to our clients in this way and create that kind of space where, because I think like you said, like the insecure achiever, I think 
so much of what people have done in their, their work um, has been in a sense like a movement away from that dysregulation, you know, a compensation. And so actually it's about um, giving space to that compensation and that dysregulation so that it can relax and then a new possibility comes online. Right. And, and I call this trauma fuel. I often call trauma taking a loan from our future. When I go through a very overwhelming situation and I fragment a part of myself, then I'm taking a loan from my own future that I have to pay back. So because otherwise I will always have a partly fragmented life. I will have some areas in my life that work really well and I will have others where I have recurrent issues. And so when I, and then it means that I need to invest time in my future to integrate that trauma. So I borrow in a way future, but then I, I need to invest future to, to pay back my loan. And the thing is that trauma didn't happen. It's like with the fridge. What's your fridge doing right now? Hmm. My fridge? Yeah, yeah just, just, yeah, just there doing its thing, chilling my, my chilling produce, my, yeah, my food. Right. Yeah. right. And, and your freezer is freezing your food that you have in your freezer, but who pays the bill? Hmm. Yeah. So you're paying the bill that the, your freezer or your fridge keeps the food cold. Right. It's not that trauma happened to us in the past. It happened to us, the experience and the trauma response. But freezing a part of myself costs energy every moment of our life. So when we tune in with our bodies and I feel muscle tensions, I feel tight in certain places. People say, no, my heart is tight. My throat is tight. My solar plexus is tight. Or I don't feel parts of my body. All of this is the same like the fridge. It, we, we pay the, the, the electricity bills for it. And, but we don't know because we don't know how much more life energy we have available that we need to invest now into keeping that stuff frozen. And that's true for the collective, st collective stuff too. And that energy, we don't, on the one hand, we don't have available for, for our evolution and innovation because it's bound in the past. It's frozen somewhere and it doesn't want to change. That's the issue. If you want to have systemic change, trauma will say no, no change. And, um, and, and the other part is that, um, that the, the, when I have, chronically chronic higher stress levels i will burn more energy than actually is sustainable for my body and that's because we come back to the insecure achiever if there's insecurity in my base in my basement as a human being then i will push more and that's what we see in our in our business world there's more pushing that burns more energy then it's sustainable. So I'm also burning more fossil fuels because actually that energy needs to come from somewhere. And as long as I'm younger, my body can kind of compensate on that. But when we become 40, 50, 60 years old, we notice we get all the collected bills that we burned more fuel than we actually had. Right. And so that's not sustainable. And if we look at sustainable or kind of regenerative, economy 
Yeah. Then in uh, in my body, regenerative economy starts in my body. It starts with how I live my life and how I create relationships, how I create organizations. Because when we can do it inside, we will also build outside an architecture that can do it. That's why there is a myth when people say, yeah, how to deal with stress at the workplace? Yeah, stress doesn't happen at the workplace. Stress happened in our past and we are bringing the lunch package of stress to our workplace, and then we say, oh, now we are so stressed at work. Yeah, but you, everybody brought their package. So we need to deal with the stress. It's a myth. We can project it onto work. We can project it onto politics. But the stress happens somewhere else, collectively, in us. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I'm struck by, well, first of all, I notice that even there's a movement, perhaps, like the word regenerative, you know, it, wasn't so much in the common language. Uh, it, it seems like more recently it started to become more of a popular thing. And I, I think like it's society mirroring the, the, the evolutionary energy of what wants to come in. And, you know, with that people feeling called to live back more in nature, you know, more in, in, in harmony. And I think that also speaks to like, ah, oh, what is that? Well, it's because they want to kind of, regulate or be more in a, in attunement or in alignment with a certain kind of way of being in the world. And, and I'm also struck by how, yeah, you, you say like there's this creative energy and it's, it's caught up in, in keeping the fruit, the, the fridge running, you know, the food cold. It's like, so this trauma, this collective trauma is actually dampening down on the creativity that could help us, respond to many of the the challenges we're facing right now as a species and that's what makes this such crucial work to be doing exactly beautiful to say yeah and let's start yeah so two things i wanted to say one was that as you said when we want to reconnect also to nature because trauma creates disembodiment and absence in the body and a lot of stress so when when we look at our ancestry i often say when the fathers can look at their sons or the mothers their daughters or mothers at their sons like when we can look at our ancestors parents and the parents can look at their parents then there is presence and then our our ancestors are structures of consciousness that are alive and part of our presence when we when we cannot look at our parents because if parenting was painful we cannot yeah we can physically look at our parents but we cannot be fully open with them so we need to do a lot of work to regain that openness, if at all that happens for some people that we restore the wounds that have been inflicted. So that's why we feel a bit separate from our parents and our parents seem to be part of our unintegrated past, which means they are, they are a bit separate. And if my, my parents and my grandparents and, and their ancestors all have this kind of uh, trauma history to a certain degree, then my roots are all so I feel the separation in my life, and I feel also a separation because my roots go into the planet. So my, the, my carbon, the water in my body, all the minerals, all this, the substances, they are part of the planet. They are not something else. Mm. 
So I'm actually animated planet. And when I'm resting in myself and my nervous system is really regulated, I feel embodied and I feel in resonance with the natural world. I feel in resonance with the social environment. I feel in resonance with the future. And I feel in resonance with all the achievements of so many generations and millions of years of life developing until today, because most of the stuff that is alive in me, I didn't invent. Mm. It's a myth that I, I didn't invent the liver and I didn't invent anger or joy. That was that stuff was there long before me. And I'm I'm living through it. That's very important because in the hyper individual uh, environment of modernity, it seems like everything is mine. It's my achievement. It's my copyright. It's mine. But let's be fair. I mean, most of the genius things that we can think people thought before us, you know, we are not the first ones that come up with all this stuff. And there were very, you know, advanced people in former generations. And we, we are actually living through their legacy or inheritance. We, we, we are here now. And that means that feeling connected and being in feedback loops with, with our environment, also with nature, for example, to feel that we need to change as a society is very important because we see climate crisis is pressing, but we are moving too slowly. But here's the other piece that you said is that because of a massive frozen energy, like millions of people in concentration camps going through terrible experiences. I've listened to many, to many experiences of the survivors, not the ones that perished, but the survivors. And it's unbelievable what things I heard that people survived. Now you can imagine millions of people going through that pain that you can only endure through a massive inner fragmentation. And we see the after effects in the, sec in the generations to come, same as on, 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 on the other side and in, in the perpetrator side, we see also massive symptoms. And now the, that frozen lake that hasn't been opened yet is a lot of frozen life energy, as you said, that is in our culture and when we want to create systems change, we have three major forces. One is evolution. Every one of us, when we are connected, is happy to evolve. We are both eager to evolve and learn from each other. And, and, and we are happy to learn from others and expand our perspectives. And every child too. Mm. And then there is habit. I can create belonging. I can create structures. But when structures are not anymore kindly, we can deconstruct them and construct better structures. So we simply construct better companies, we construct better social systems, we construct better life environments. But trauma, so structures can be opened mm -hmm. through the evolutionary push and maybe through education, learning, widening my perspectives and then creating a different environment around me. But the trauma, its nature is frozen. I cannot push trauma through activism. If I push trauma, I get a pushback because trauma needs to hold. You know, my nervous system is intelligent because it can push down and suppress material that would overload me. Yeah. And the pain in 
like the Holocaust pain, if we were to open those gates right now, many people would end up in psychiatries. Right. So there's an intelligent function to keep that pain stored away until we have the right environment and the right safety and skill set to slowly open those uh, pipes and let the pain come out in portions to be that we can digest that, that past, lead it into an integration. And integration always leads to a learning on a higher level of perspective. So integration is two fragmented parts coming together and creating a learning and an evolutionary step. Yeah. And that's, so what you said is very on that these frozen lakes actually prevent us from responding to climate change, for example, or to other change processes, but we cannot push it. We need to learn how to embrace and heal it together. I, I want to um, dive into that, you know, like, cause also like we can look at this in, on a company level, but it feels like there is a rise in activism right now as well, you know, which is like maybe there are groups of people colluding um, who are traumatized and then there's, you know, they're fighting other groups and uh, that, that it just feels like it's not the right way, you know, to me, it's like, it just feels like it's creating, you know, increased polarization and um, more division, and so when you say that, just what you said now, that's what it brings up to me. It's like, ah, yeah. It, and then that leads me to like, oh, how do we actually work with this? You know, um, so maybe we could go there. Like you yeah. said that in groups, somebody comes in and then they share their story, but it's the content that behind the story that begins to, in some sense, like impact the group. And and so, like, what what's the process there? Like, what are you guiding people, or you know, how do you hold that space so that there is, um, you know, it is able to be um, the pipes are opened, as you said, you know, and then there's an integration. Right. The, first, I would love to respond to the activism. Yeah, yeah. There is like the healthy form of activism is the one that recognizes old structures in society, in, in, in myself and in, in, in organizations and the world that are not anymore timely and prevent us from developing better structures that are much more adapted to the needs of evolution today. And it might be identity structures, personal identity structures, national identity structures, religious identity structures, all kinds of conditionings that simply don't make sense anymore in a global village. And we have to change them. In order to get to a global collaboration, we have to do that. And there's no question about it. Right. So, and, and it doesn't matter if we like the old structures still, or if it benefits us financially, we need to be part of the change because holding on to it will just create more suffering. So in our dynamic fluidity or capacity to change, we can do it because we are all creative and we did this for thousands of years again and again. So we are not the first ones who need to change. And so activism is great to bring more education, to bring more knowledge, to, to create the public you know, information campaigns and to also 
steer up some energy to say, listen, there's something we really need to look at. And that's true. Unskillful activism is the one that doesn't recognize trauma. Because when I come with my enthusiasm and then I call trauma stupidity or laziness to change, I miss the point. And what I get back is a backlash. And I'm actually contributing, as you beautifully said, to societal polarization. And that's an unskillful attempt. That's what it is. Because I, I think well, even, sorry, yeah, it even yeah. happens in the trauma communities. That, totally. Yeah, they're like trauma-informed communities that then, but yeah, sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead. Yeah. And so when, when we do that, we don't recognize, because we are not related properly to whom we meet, how we meet them, and what they express. Right. So now we are coming to the next uh, question that you said, how do we do this in the groups? And I think upgrading our relational capacities, I feel you feeling me, because if I feel you and I feel that you are right now expressing a trauma trigger or a dysregulation in your own nervous system or some numbness, I understand and I feel that that's what you are in. It's not that you need more information in order to change. That will overload your system even more. And it's an unskillful intervention. Like for some therapists, overloading their clients with just more knowledge is actually unskillful because it, it only strengthens the defense patterns. But if I see, wow, that's what you're in or that's what a group of people is in or that's what a part of our society is in, I need a different approach. But if I'm not related well, then I'm actually unconsciously participating in the trauma. Mm. So only if I don't feel, I will do that. If I feel, I'll get it because I'm aware of the process and I will apply a different intervention. And it might be that with one person at one time, we need more knowledge and education. At another moment, we need more embrace and support to digest something from the past. So what we have developed over a long period, like over these 18 years, is group processes where we create very kind of um, precisely, we create some through exercises and relational attunement exercises, as you said, we create relational coherence, relational coherence creates more safety. And then naturally, when, the, when many people's bodies and nervous systems feel more safe, what happens? We relax a bit. And when we relax, the nervous system wants to detox past material. We see this sometimes when people meditate, then we sit down and then people want to be quiet, but then they are everything else but quiet because once there's a quiet moment, the nervous system produces and discharges the battery charge that has been suppressed. It comes back, memories, things that I didn't do, things that I did, conflict ahead. So I'm busy with all this internal cinema. And then after some time, it starts to calm down and, and integrate itself. But that's good news because actually our bodies, and not only our bodies, nature wants to heal. And we need to learn how to become allies of the self-healing mechanism of life. And somebody cuts himself, 
and there is a bleeding, and then there is like it dries, and then there is a healing process until you almost don't see that there was a cut. So the skin can heal the tissue in a in a phenomenal way. Sometimes we have scars, but sometimes not. And and that same process, I believe, is what our psyches. I don't like the word psyche because I believe there is no mental disease only or a psychological disease. It's always a mental embodied disease or disorder or process. So even the term mental disease, I think is kind of irritating because, or not irritating, it's kind of confusing because it's, it seems like it's just happening in my mind, which is not true. It happens always in my body also. And so trauma healing can happen only through the body. And we learn the regulations, like Steve Porges in the polyvagal theory describes very beautifully how like the frontal part of our vagal nervous system, which runs through our frontal chest, is actually a plug-in for co-regulation. If our hearts open, a stressed person, by me just feeling a stressed client for two, three minutes being stressed, and I don't reject that stress because I don't want to feel it, but I I can be with the person, within two, three minutes, the stress in the nervous system will relax naturally because the person feels sick. Another nervous system helps him or her co-regulate their nervous system. And then their mind can open up again to solve problems because we don't solve problems when we are so tense. We solve problems when we have a space for it. And um, and so the in the group, we create this relational coherence. And then the detox mechanism shows up naturally. And then we just actually need to follow the skillfully through attunement to follow the release process that is anyway happening. And one thing that is very important that I think is a systemic correction or learning I think we need to go through is that we think still of weaknesses as something we want to get rid of. I think of weaknesses as childhood heroes. The weakness is a part of me that I needed very much as a function when I was young. Today, it looks like a block in my life or a difficulty in my life. I give an example. If a child doesn't feel safe and the child contracts the pelvis and the, the muscles of the lower back in order to manage the fear, and if that's chronic, the child often doesn't feel safe, then it pulls out the sensitivity from the lower part of the body. And if that's a chronic state, it becomes an unconscious, it gets suppressed in the unconscious. So as a grown up, I might feel that I'm often not sure how I should decide. I don't feel my body well. I'm, I'm, I have insecurities and anxieties the whole time. It's hard for me to make clear decisions. I don't feel sometimes my compass. I don't know what I should do. And so because I'm not sitting fully in my body, I'm not sitting fully in life, I can't feel life fully. So I, and I'm more mental. So my mind is more active. So later on in life, when maybe I have, I see the symptoms that I described and I call them weaknesses, or when I'm 40 years old, I have serious back issues. 
then we can say that's a problem. We can also say it's a function that was super needed for the child in order to secure the further development, but untreated and unintegrated, it will have side effects. But that's not how we often think about it. Sometimes we think about, oh, our defense patterns are bad. I should be always open. When I'm not open, something is wrong. No, when I'm not open, I'm simply protecting a part of myself and I need it as long as it's there. Yeah, so this uh, was a longer answer, but I yeah. think that's very important altogether uh, for, to answer your questions. More yeah. No, I think there's so much in that. And I just want to kind of point towards what you said there about how that's the way I've seen you work with people. And it's been a re- kind of a revelation. And I see it emerging in the coaching field as well. And it gives me hope in that, yeah, when you start to honor the intelligence in these uh, these patterns, you know, and and um, it can be very subtle the way we hold it, particularly in the in the industry where you know it's a lot about becoming, and um, so we still hold it as like oh it's something in the way, you know, like oh if only I was oh I feel shame because I'm not over it yet, and and but when we are when we actually begin to include that part, um that's when it's like it just so much starts to begin to flow again to unfold when it's when it's truly allowed to be there you know because it, it's like it had been unconscious yeah and we've been part a lot of our developmental work has been a, a bouncing off that it's been a reaction to it so i i think this is um part of this leading edge and this trauma informed work that that actually leads to um, this sense of integration that leads to then a different order of creativity and sensitivity. Like you said before about the modernist individualistic kind of momentum. That's I think that's another thing. It's like people are really questioning that now, I think, because it, it then it desensitizes us to our environment and nature. And so, yeah, right. like it, it. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry. Well, um, it makes me wonder about um, how we, as you know, people working in how this shows up in organizations too. You know, um, how we might be begin to see see how trauma might be playing out, systemic trauma and individual trauma in organizations. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's great. And I want to say something to what you said before. Um, yeah. You said something lovely. You said that many people stigmatize themselves and they say, I still have that pattern. Mm. And I often say, what do you mean by still? And what's the difference between still and the pattern? Right. And, and then we find out that actually my mind holds an idea that I shouldn't have that pattern. And I, when I say that sentence, it's not that it's wrong to say that sentence. That's what I'm saying. Because then people think, oh, it's wrong, I shouldn't say it. It's a different behavior, which covers it up even more. Right. But the, when I see that I, I already expressed the symptom, why I still have that pattern, when I say I still have that pattern. Because it looks like 
there's a part of me that thinks I should be further down the road. That's thinking. And that thinking is disconnected from what happens in my emotional and physical experience. Because if I'm sometimes protective, and then I say, yeah, but I'm still protective. Yeah, but why still? I am sometimes protective. Hmm. And it needs me to listen, but not to listen in order for it to go away, to disappear, but to listen because it's there, because that's part of me. I'm doing this. It's not that protectiveness happens to me. Same as like back pain. Most of the people don't say, when they come to a massage therapist, they say, listen, I am I am suppressing a lot of my overwhelming fear, and that's why I contract the muscles of my lower back, and that's why I have a back pain today. No, most of the people come and say, listen, I have a tension in my back. There's a strong tension or there's a strong muscle contraction that I have, have feel in my back, and I have a strong back pain. Why is that happening to me? Yeah. Yeah, it, like an it. Yeah. A tension. Nobody can relax a tension. You can relax only... I'm tensing up, you can say, I'm relaxing, but I cannot relax a tension because it looks like it's not me doing it. When people say, oh, my heart is tight, who made it tight? Or my throat is tight now. Yeah, I'm not aware of the process of tightening up. It looks like it happened now. You said something to me that triggered me and, and I feel tense. Yeah, but who created that tension? So that process is outside of my consciousness. I'm not aware because it happens not today to me as a, as a grown-up man. It happens to me when I was two and I hear the echo, like at two, somebody was really screaming. At 45, I feel my throat is tight. Mm. The tightness is here a symptom. As a two-year-old, I was really controlling my fear. And so I'm getting re-triggered but it means I'm surfacing a symptom, and that's very important. Mm. So the, how we stigmatize ourselves because we have those patterns is already part of the pattern. Because I'm not yet deeply in contact with myself in the way I created that in the past as a very important function that I needed and I created it out of my intelligence. That's very important. It's not somebody created it for me or I created it because I'm stupid. No, I created it because I'm intelligent. And so that's that's one thing that I want to say because I think it creates a lot of stress and a lot of frustration in many of us. We say, yeah, but I shouldn't have that anymore. And now I'm working as a coach, or as a therapist, or as a consultant. I shouldn't have all this anymore. And if that's what we convey to our clients, then we co convey the same pressure onto our clients. Mm. Because if we carry it inside, we also unconsciously convey it. So it's very important that we create a community where we help each other to mirror these places back onto each mm. other because we're actually working together. You know, nobody needs to do this alone. We have the gift of being a community. That's why we are social animals. We need each other. And it's great that we need each other. Mm. It's great because some people say, no, I'm independent. I should not need anybody. No, it doesn't work like this. We are interdependent. And sometimes it's the higher intelligence to reach out and to try too long on my own. Mm. 
Mm. So that's one thing. Mm. And the other thing I think for organizations is that, first of all, to be able to recognize the massive epidemic um, fragmentation and disembodiment in our world, how often the mind, the emotions and the body say something else. So the mind says A and the emotions and the body say B or B or C. Mm. And if in communication that's not in my awareness, I will be hypnotized by what people tell me without noticing what their body tells me and what their emotions tell me. And that's so important that that inner coherence can be upgraded because coherence is like a flow in the nervous system between the body, the emotions and the mind. That's what we call coherence, that that is one flow and expression is called well-being. It's a data flow. My body is alive, my emotions are alive, my mind is alive, and my expression is alive. That's called coherence. And my soul can be expressed through that coherence. Mm. When, when, um, when we are fragmented inside, then we interpret many things. We are often very mental, but it doesn't fit to the emotional. It's actually often a protection of the emotional and physical field. And I think I often say when the mind serves nature, which is grounded in the body, it's a blessing. All the scientific and technological development that comes out of integrated minds is perfect. If the mm -hmm. mind is disconnected from nature, it becomes a weapon. And it actually serves the disconnection through more information. It serves it even more. And we need to discern it because that's what we are in. We are in the rational age and the rational age is actually here to serve nature, not to exploit it. Mm. And, and, um, and so in organizations, like when we create fields where we create more internal coherence, because coherence is always the power then, that can heal the fragmentation. My internal coherence is my resource to work on my own trauma, Ours together, when you lend me your coherence, I have more coherence because mine and yours to heal my trauma or vice versa. And as groups, we have a massive amount of coherence when we create appropriate relations. So that's one thing. And the other thing is to know that we are sitting in an unconscious systemic trauma that is already, as I said at the beginning, very old and repetitive throughout history. And we need to learn how to become aware of it because trauma creates like filters in our perception. Where I'm traumatized, I cannot see you fully. I see you minus the information that's absent in myself. Right. And so I will not be able as a facilitator to support you fully to heal your trauma if it's very similar to mine. I cannot because I don't have the embodied transmission. And that's why facilitators on the one hand need to, um, like it's a lifelong agreement that we keep clearing our vessel, that we keep looking for supervision, we keep looking for learning and integration and we exchange and we are part of reflections and we get reflections from life. That's a healthy sign. And yeah. because the trauma that is unconscious works through incongruencies and irritations. So when we get irritated or we don't understand something, then we meet like the invisible trauma field and we notice it, but we don't know what we notice usually. 
like you can listen to somebody, you can say, yeah, would you tell me would your mind makes sense? But in my body, I didn't understand you. Yeah. Often we, we kind of skip over those kind of internal feelings that we have where the person's inner dissociation transmits itself, transfers itself onto me. And then I, I feel irritated in the body, but I understand what the person said cognitively. That's a, an, a, an incongruency. And, and the other uh, part is that when organizations go through traumatic events as organizations, the organization also needs a holding and needs work to be done in order to integrate it because integration means learning. But there's a lot of post-traumatic growth through the integration of trauma. Yeah. I'm just thinking about how important that work is in these times with the pandemic, you know, that uh, it's created kind of a shock in the system, but that if we can um, be with that and allow that to be here, that could release that sense of creativity. And I'm just getting a sense of teams of organizations coming together and being aware of that kind of congruence, you know, when we're together and tracking it, when we're, you know, both into um, kind of connecting with one another, but also working on projects, you know, that we can be attuned in the way that um, allows that greater um, intelligence and coherence to kind of um, move into the things we create and our, and, and serve our customers and things. And um, that feels like really important work for us to be doing. I love the call you made for people to keep doing the deep work and, refining ourselves as instruments as facilitators um and i'm aware of the time um and i think uh i'd love to just invite you to share about your book like where we can find out more about that and your work of course and um, mm -hmm. i'm really excited to read your book so yeah yeah so one one thing is that um uh, to what you said is that yes, first of all, to do the inner work more is a sign of maturity, not of weakness. Secondly, um, the as the earlier we integrate trauma as it's appropriate, like in organizations, for example, now with the pandemic, is the earlier we do it, the easier it is. You know, if somebody gets traumatized and we bring compassion, we bring sometimes even holding a hand of the person that got hurt. And, and bringing compassion and felt awareness to that person reduces the PTSD of that person by far. So the after effects of the trauma will be less than when we don't do it. So we can create, as you said, literally supportive environments in organizations, honor that we went through something difficult, let everybody speak and share how you went through this, create environments where we listen to each other with the right listening tools and I'm sure that there are many in the coaching the coaching world that there are many skilled people to provide that listening. And so we can actually do a lot and we don't have to be a super trained trauma therapist. We can create environments that can take care of such impacts. Mm -hmm. And then complex trauma needs to go to a trauma therapist, of course, because there are some people that trained this for many years. And, and I think that's important to know too, that if I have really severe trauma or stronger attachment mm -hmm. trauma, whatever, I need to see a therapist. That's my workplace cannot provide that. And the coach also cannot provide that. But that, that 
there is another dimension of 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 trauma informed coaching or trauma informed group facilitation that I think um, people that are trained in certain modalities can provide, and that's amazing. And uh, and I think we have to to make this more a collective competence, you know, that it becomes something that the collective Fully knows agreed. how to do. Yeah. And Fully and, agreed. Uh, yeah. And about the book, um, the, so the book is called Healing Collective Trauma, a process for integrating um, cultural and historic trauma, like ancestral and uh, historic trauma. So healing collective trauma is the main title of the book, and it's a it's a pendulum between the scientific and the wisdom traditions. So there are chapters that are scientific trauma chapters. There's more wisdom traditions informed or the mystically informed um, knowledge about trauma than about collective trauma. There's a very challenging chapter about racism uh, in in the U.S. there and. And we, we go through that chapter and, and explore what, what collective trauma means and what it creates in a society. And then we go through an in-detail exploration of the CTIP, the collective trauma integration process with groups and, and what we discovered, uh, like a, a process design. Then there is a, a chapter just for capacities and competencies that facilitators need. In, in my understanding. And then we look at the systemic symptoms and the systemic outlook. So what's a vision for healing collective trauma in the world? And um, so for everybody that is really interested in systemic evolution, in more well-being of individuals and collectives, and also is more interested in some tools, how to work with uh, trauma and collective trauma. Of course, it doesn't make us a trained facilitator, but for facilitators, we will find inspirations for our work as well. So yeah, and it uh, came out last week, and mm. uh, I'm very happy. And so yeah, I'm very happy if it's if it supports anybody in the coaching community to get more to the systemic effects of trauma and um, be part. I think of of a new growing wave of collective healing because we're talking about collective trauma because we're developing tools how to take care of it. Mm. And I think take care of it through many, many, many people that are getting deeper into that and help our systems to de-ice and to allow the creativity that is bound in trauma to actually become our jet fuel for the next level of evolution. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful. We'll put links to your to the book and to the web, your website in uh, the podcast page as well. So uh, yeah, Thomas, yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for being here and sharing on this topic. I really so want to promote this work. I think it's really important. Thank you so much, Joe. And I really enjoy your quality of, of this kind of conversations that we had already in the past and today there's a very lovely quality and attention and relation that you offer as a host which creates mm. a very lovely flow in the in the conversation so thank you very much and thank you for the work you're doing with coaches rising i really appreciate that all right thanks for listening and i will see you next time mm.